Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. Club Book is made possible by Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, MELSA, and Library Strategies. We would like to thank our media sponsors at Minnesota Public Radio and MinPost.com for helping us get the word out about our great guest authors. This podcast features Brad Taylor at Scott County Library, Prior Lake. Brad Taylor is the pen behind the New York Times bestselling Pike Logan series. Now spanning 14 installments, Taylor's high-octane thrillers center around the Task Force, a highly trained covert ops team answerable only to a select few at the highest rungs of government. Protagonist Pike Logan first burst onto the scene in 2011's One Rough Man, which earned Taylor glowing comparisons to established heavyweights like Vince Flynn, Tom Clancy, and Brad Thor. Reviewers praised the believability of Taylor's storylines and settings, and the authenticity has been hard won. Taylor served more than two decades in the U.S. Army in both the Infantry and Special Forces Divisions, including a stint with the clandestine Delta Force. His talents are on full display in Hunter Killer. Logan's latest adventure finds the elite task force, often the hunters, in the unfamiliar role of the hunted. Kirkus Reviews calls it a surefire hit for those who like contemporary foreign affairs spiced heavily with page-turning action. This book is the first book I've written that actually came from another book. I usually get asked, where do you get your ideas from? Uh, usually it's a news story or something like that. Uh, this time, my last book, Daughter of War, I had a tangential antagonist in the form of a private military company called Wagner. It's a Russian private military company, and it's real. It really exists. They're in Libya right now fighting for Haftar, trying to take over Tripoli, the warlord there. They propped up uh, Assad. They're the ones in, in Syria that's propping up Assad. They took over the Crimean Peninsula. In fact, we killed 200 of them in Syria a year ago, last February. The uh, demarcation line was the Euphrates River from where we were, where the Kurds, and where the Assad's forces were, right there. Don't cross the river. We won't shoot you. You don't shoot us. And they all came across the river trying to take um, oil refineries, the same ones we're pre- protecting right now, as a matter of fact. So we said, hey, you better not come. Hey, you better not come. They kept coming. And so, unfortunately for them, the Kurds had a bunch of special forces guys in them who can bring holy hell from on high. And we annihilated the whole armored regiment that was coming across. And then we went out on the battlefield and we're like, these guys were not Arabic, they're Russian. Russia denies that ever happening. Uh, and it works out well for them because Putin can use them. There's a lot of talk about Iranian proxy forces, Hezbollah, that kind of stuff. The Houthis in Yemen and Iran can attack us through them and they don't get blamed for it. They say, hey, it's not us, it's Hezbollah. Well, it's kind of the same thing with uh, Wagner. Russian Putin says, for the domestic audience, there's nobody coming home in a pine box with a Russian flag. Those guys get killed, they're a private military company. Uh, and when we kill them, like we did in Syria, 
Putin says, I don't know what you're talking about. Those guys are a private military company. They've got nothing to do with me. So he can send those guys out and do whatever he wants to with them, and he gets plausible deniability, and he has used them all over the world. Well, I had uh, I done a, a ton of research on them for Daughter of War because they were big in Daughter of War. And every morning I read feeds every day from all over the world, from all different kind of news sources. And I saw a story that when Maduro was having trouble in Venezuela last year, uh, Putin sent down a company of Wagner mercenaries down there to protect him. And that piqued my interest. I mean, I was, I was kind of gutsy. You're going to send him in our own backyard? And so I started doing the research on it, not because I was going to write a book, but just because it interested me. It's like, what are they doing down there? And Southcom, or South America, Southern Command, that's not my AO. I spent all my time somewhere else. And so uh, I didn't know a lot about it. I had to do a lot of research because I don't really know a whole lot about South America. And I stumbled upon the Brazilian elections, the actual clown fest of the Brazilian elections that were going on down there. The uh, lead candidate down there uh, in Brazil was in prison for corruption. And he was winning by double digits. He was going to be president. And he was in prison. And um, the Supreme Court finally decided that uh, they made a ruling and said, hey, I tell you this, but you can't be president and be in prison. It's just kind of a thing we don't do. And so they said he couldn't run. Well, he was in prison for a corruption scandal called uh, Car Wash, which is the largest corruption scandal in, a state's, in modern history for a state system. Didn't make a lot of news in the United States, but it sure made a lot of news down there. And in fact, there's a whole Netflix series dedicated to it, all kinds of stuff. Uh, and it's called Car Wash because uh, this low-level police officer was going to arrest a low-level politician who was going in to take a bribe. And he took the bribe at a car wash. And instead of arresting that guy, this the policeman said, well, let's see how high this goes. Well, it went super high, all the way up to the top of the government. Uh, the president, his entire parliament, they were all taking money. Huge corruption scandal. Brought the whole government of uh, Brazil down. And the person paying the bribes was Petrobras, which is their state-run oil company. They were bribing everybody. Well, at the same time this is going on, they discovered the, the um, largest oil fields in the 20th century off the coast of Brazil. They're called the Lulu oil fields because that's what the president's name is, the one that's in prison. <laughs> guess you can name it. If you find it, it's yours. Uh, and uh, Russia wants a piece of it. Now, Brazil can't get the um, oil out of the ground. They just don't have the technology to get out of the ground. So they need, you know, an investment from foreign companies, Exxon, usual people, to come in and get out of the ground. But Petrobras is so corrupt that the American companies were kind of afraid to do it. They're like, if I get in bed with this company and then something bad happens, they're doing some more corruption, I'm going to lose my investment. And so they're having a hard time doing it. At the same time, Rosneft, which is the Russian state oil company, their version of Exxon, um, they weren't, the Brazilians weren't letting them in at all. Well, as I was doing research on what uh, the Russians are doing down there, I came across a st strategy document where they want to get into what they call our near abroad. And it's because we're in their near abroad. We're encroaching closer and closer and closer to the Russian Federation. And they want to put somebody in our backyard just to give us heartache. That's what they want to do. The biggest example of that would be the Cuban Missile Crisis. We got missiles in Europe. They're going to put missiles in Cuba. But they're still trying to do it. They're selling arms. They're flanning planes. They're trying to make all these friendship connections. Besides the usual suspects of Venezuela and Cuba, they want to really penetrate into South America because we've really penetrated into um, near their borders. When the Soviet Union fell, the USSR fell, all those ring states, which was a buffer for Russia, turned around and said, we want to join NATO. And we said, sure, come on into NATO, which didn't make Russia happy. We get closer and closer and closer with these NATO companies. In fact, Montenegro just joined NATO. Last year, they had a coup, supposed to have a coup in Montenegro. Guess who was running the coup? 
Wagner. Wagner guys went into Montenegro and tried to overthrow the government so they wouldn't join NATO. They caught it in time, arrested them all, they're all in prison now. Of course, they're saying, hey, the Russians tried to overthrow Montenegro to keep, out, to keep them out of NATO. Russia says, I don't know who those guys are. They look like a bunch of civilian Russian contractor types. I had nothing to do with it. So now those guys are going to rot in jail. Well, so I had enough, there was enough stuff going on down there. And I thought, that's, uh, there's enough stuff for a story there. I can make a story out of that. There's uh, just a, all kinds of intrigue going on down there. Uh, so then it's time to get on the ground. So if I can get to, uh, if I can get on the ground, I'll definitely do so, so I can see. We had a saying, sight, sound, smells of the battlefield. You don't know what it's like until you get out there. Before you go on patrol, you want to know what does it sound like, what's, what's normal, what's not normal. So if something bad's going to happen, you know the difference between the two. Uh, I'm not stupid. For daughter war, I didn't go to North Korea. <laughs> I didn't go to Syria either, but I could fake the funk on that one from being in Iraq. But uh, this time it's Brazil. I mean, I could run all over Brazil. So that's what I set out to do. And usually when I'm when I go down to do the book research, whatever country I'm going to, it's about 50% that I'm looking for. I've got a list of stuff that I'm going to go see this stuff, and it's going to help my book. But I've learned that there's 50% that's looking for me, and I don't have any idea what it is, but it's going to hit me in the head when I get there, uh, and usually it ends up in the book. And the, um, probably the best case of that, two books ago I wrote Operator Down. I think you got to sit over there. I don't know if you do or not. Maybe that book. <laughs> so that book's about a... Uh, uh, a coup in Lesotho. Lesotho is a country in Africa that's completely surrounded by South Africa. If I'm insulting you, don't feel bad. I didn't know the country existed until I found out about it. it the book is about uh, blood diamonds, things like that. And I didn't want to go to Sierra Leone or anything. Well, I found Lesotho has the largest grade uh, gem quality diamonds on earth. And there's this country right in the center of South Africa. And they have a history of having coups. And so I said, that's what I'm going to do write that book. I went to Australia, I mean, I went to uh, Israel, all over South Africa, and then into Lesotho. Well, since it's about a coup, I didn't do any tourist stuff while I was in Lesotho. I just went around and took pictures of stuff that I could, if I was going to do a coup, where are the centers that I'd have to take out? How would I do this? And uh, I, the people who were going to do the coup were the Special Forces Regiment of the Lesotho Defense Forces, which is, you can probably imagine, there's not a lot of Google on them. I only knew they existed. That was about it. And so I was trying to figure out where were they stationed, you know, what was their composition, everything like that. Well, I found a, um, I found a military base, went to the military base, tried to get on, said, I'm retired military from America. I just want to come in and see this place. That's what I like to do when I go to foreign overseas places, blah, blah, blah. Of course, they said, get out of here. <laughs> You're not coming in. Well, before I could leave, two Suburbans rolled up, and I got rolled up as an American spy that was spying on Lesotho. And I got to go on base. <laughs> took me on the base and I got interrogated for about eight hours and uh, I learned a whole lot about Lesotho politics and I had nothing on me that was going to help me everything was I had no tourist stuff on me I had pictures of a police station and pictures of the radio station I had a pictures of prime minister residence from a moving vehicle in the picture was a sign saying no photos <laughs> and so I they were just I didn't look I didn't look good at all um so that, that wasn't looking for me. I mean, I, that, I wasn't looking for that at all. And uh, it all made it in the book, though. I learned a lot about it. They told me a lot about Lesotho politics, which I had no idea about. Turns out that the military hates Americans. And I walked right up. <laughs> Police force loves Americans. Military hates Americans. They have a fight going on. Long story short, it all made it in the book. But I wasn't even looking for that. That same thing happened in Brazil, but luckily nothing like that. Uh, I was in Manaus, which is uh, an industrial city in the north. 
that's uh, they have some Petrobras refineries and things like that. That's why I was going there. And as long as you're there, you got to do some touristy stuff. So I went to the this Manaus Opera House, which is built by the Robert, rubber barons a long time ago. It's a big famous opera house, at least according to them. So we went and saw it, and um, it was boring. I mean, inside stained glass window and whatever. How long is this going to take? Uh, I wasn't really enjoying it. And then the, the guide that was with us said that didn't right up here in the balconies, that's where the rubber barons used to have their orgies with their uh, mistresses. And I was like, what? What'd you say? And he, I, I thought I misheard him. He said, no, there's a secret tunnel that runs underneath this building, goes into the orchestra pit. They would get them in from the outside, under the tunnel, underneath the audience, into the ladder and up to the balconies. And that's where they would have sex with their mistresses. And I was like, that's making a book. But I mean... <laughs> So I convinced him to let me go down there and see the tunnels. It's not advertised. Nobody knows about it. I mean, they don't advertise. Come see the Manaus Opera House and the tunnel where they ran the horse through. I just, but I, if I hadn't been down there, I never would have known. And I wasn't looking for that at all. And it ended up in the book. Uh, another one that ended up but it is a cultural thing that um, you, uh, and this is kind of gross, but it's, I had a, I, the Russians were going to crack into a hotel room. So what they're going to do is wait for the maid to leave, service a room. She's gone. Then they're going to break in and search it and do whatever they're going to do. But I want them to get compromised in a room. And so I'm going through my head, you know, how do you do this in a book without making it look contrived? You know, I, just, I don't want to send a manager up there. I don't want to send, how am I going to do this? And um, as it turns out in Brazil, which is something they don't advertise, unless you're in a really high-end hotel in Rio or Sao Paulo, you can't flush your toilet paper down the toilet. The plumbing won't take it. So you have to put it in the trash can. The poopy bin, I called it. And I'm sitting there trying to figure out how am I going to do this. And this maid comes in. She's already cleaned our room. And I was like, whoa, what are you doing? Are you poopy today? I was like, uh, I did. I mean, clean it up. I'm only going to go once, so you don't have to come back. And it turns out they come in randomly five times a day. And so that's how I compromised the Russians. I didn't know they were going to do it, so they wouldn't know they would do it. But I would never know that if I didn't get down there on the ground. Now, sometimes when I'm doing research down there, I found I have a superpower. That uh, in my third book, because I think you know, the first time I did it, so if you do me wrong, you're ending up in the book. <laughs> and I can make things. Well, for instance, the head interrogator for Operator Down, he's dead in the book. Got him. Uh, so I was, I was in uh, Doha, Qatar, doing uh, research for Enemy of Mine. And um, I had hired this Pakistani driver you know, for a nickel a day. He's 21 years old or something like that. My wife said, you're going to end up in the trunk of a car, cross the border, we're never going to see you again. He was a good kid, though. He just wasn't that bright. And so he, uh, he, he had a, a basic flip phone. He says, here's a flip phone, because I was getting out of the car all the time, and we were constantly so I was saying, meet me back here in 20 minutes or whatever, because I was checking sites out. And he said, how about I just give you this phone, and then you can uh, run around when you need me, call me, and I'll come pick you up. The phone was dead. And he said, just go put some minutes on the phone, and uh, you'll, uh, I'll take it off the price of your uh, you know, he's going to end up owing me money because I'm not paying him that much. <laughs> so I said, that sounds great. He drops me off the mall. I go into the mall and uh, find a phone place, a really beautiful mall. It's a gorgeous mall. And find a phone place, and they all speak English. And turns out his phone is locked. I can't do anything to it. So now he's driving around. I have a phone I can't contact him on. I can't put any minutes on it. It's dead. And uh, it's 9,000 degrees outside. Oh, and it's Ramadan. So Ramadan... In a Middle Eastern country, you can't eat from dawn till dusk. So I am starving. Uh, some countries, like Egypt, other countries, it's frowned upon to eat. In Doha, it's illegal. If you get caught eating, you go to jail. So you really cannot eat. 
you're talking to subway lady, slipping my bag, I won't tell anybody. Um, so I was starving, I couldn't find him. I said, okay, I'm just gonna get some need. I find something. And I saw the Four Seasons about a quarter mile away. So I walked through, sweating like a hog, get to the Four Seasons, because the Four Seasons is really ritzy place where all the overseas Western businessmen come to talk to the people in Qatar about whatever business they're doing. So I was sure they were gonna feed, they're not gonna let all the gringos starve. So I went in there and said, hey, you know, where the, where the gringos get to eat? <laughs> and they said, yeah, you can go downstairs to the basement and give you some food. So I went down there and I got a hamburger and a Coke. That's what I got, a hamburger and a Coke. And they brought me the bill and it was 75 bucks. <laughs> I could not believe it. I thought it was, I mean, what is it, gold-plated hamburger? I thought it was a wrong ticket, but it was my ticket, hamburger and a Coke. And so, Four Seasons made the book because I blew that whole hotel up. <laughs> I came upstairs. I did the research around there, said I looked at all their security, figured out how to get a bomb in here, put it next to the front desk, and boom! <laughs> so charge me 75 bucks for a hamburger, I'm blowing your hotel up. And the, uh, I thought my publisher would change the name, you know, turn it to the Seven Seasons or something, but they didn't. I was like, all right, your legal guys read it. It's the real Four Seasons, and that's really how it looks. <laughs> well, that same thing happened in, uh, in Brazil this time. So I had a... Um, my wife went with me, and, and since we're going down to Brazil, she said, we have to go to the Amazon. I said, I don't want to go to the Amazon. It's going to have nothing to do with the book. I can, there's no way I can shoehorn the Amazon into the book. It's going to be all urban-based, things like that. She said, we're never going back to Brazil. It'd be stupid not to go to the Amazon. And she had a pretty good point. Spent a lot of money to get down there, so might as well go see the Amazon. So we did. And they had this seaplane that you could fly from uh, Manaus straight into the, where the Jungle Lodge was, landing right on the Negro River and uh, hop right off and get into the lodge. Uh, and it was $700 a ticket. And I said, I'm not paying $700 a ticket just for a 45 minute plane flight. So what's the other option? Well, it's this van that they'll provide you for free. And it turned out to be a four hour bouncing hell trip. And this van with the windows open, and exhaust and dust, and bouncing up and down the road. By the time I got there, I thought I was gonna throw up. And that plane was sounding pretty good. $700 a ticket, that's not, you know, I don't wanna get back in that van. And um, so I went to the seaplane port, and it turns out it was not $700 a ticket. My tour or travel guide was wrong. It's $700 for the whole plane, and it's nine seats. If you get nine people on that thing, you know, it's 90 bucks a ticket. I said, put me down. Put me down for two. I guarantee everybody else in that van doesn't know this either, and they don't want to ride that thing back. So we did all our stuff in the Amazon, the tours and things like that. And then it came time to go, and I was down there during the election, and um, one of the candidates, I don't remember which one, had commandeered the plane. He was maybe, maybe not gonna do some kind of campaign event in the upper Amazon somewhere, so this, the plane was on standby waiting on him. Uh, he may not take it though, so it may fly. Well, I had a cutoff, because a van trip's four hours long to get back, and I had a flight I had to catch from Manaus. So at a certain point, I had to make a decision, I gotta get in the van. If he decided not to use a plane, you know, it could go all the way up to three hours later, it'd be fine. But if he took the plane, I was going to miss my flight. So we sat there, pins and needles, pins and needles, and finally it was like, we got to take the van. So we did. Bounced all the way back. And so uh, I shoehorned Amazon in the book, and I blew that plane <laughs> out of the sky. <laughs> that thing went up in the air. <laughs> fiery explosion, everybody screaming as it crashed into the Amazon. So that's, uh, sometimes I get to do things that you do me wrong, but most of the times it's, it's kind of, uh, most of the pictures I take and things like that, people, you know, if you want to see my trip to Brazil, it'd be a bunch of street signs and sewers and things like that. 
just so I can figure out where I am. Uh, the one thing I do have to keep a huge track on is uh, technology. Technology just keeps going and keeps going and keeps going. And it's really hard to keep up with. Um, back when I was in the military, well, actually, towards the end of it, it got to be what I was about to talk about. It used to be you had the Q shop, you know, James Bond's Q shop had the neatest stuff in the world and the gadgets and everything. For us, the CIA had DST, uh, Director of Science Technology. But nowadays, it's commercial off the shelf stuff. They're the ones that are doing everything, and it's easier just to buy stuff off the shelf. And most of the research I do now is not based on what some gee whiz spy's doing, it's based on what criminals are doing. And they're the ones cracking the code on all this stuff that we then use. Um, one book, Ring of Fire, they were trying to, I wanted to be able to suck some information out of a phone, and I was trying to figure out how to do it without, you know, compromising stuff that I really knew would work. And it turns out that you, everybody has their phone, and you, if you have Wi-Fi in your house or Starbucks or whatever, you leave the Wi-Fi on. So as soon as you walk in, it automatically connects. I'm back on my Wi-Fi. Well, these criminals figured out that's a pretty neat thing. And in New York City, everybody who goes into certain Starbucks, their phone automatically hooks to the Starbucks. Well, they launched a drone in the air with a server on it, flew it overhead at the street corner. There's, you know, 50 people waiting across the street a block away from the Starbucks. Out of that 50 people, there's probably 10 who are in that Starbucks, who frequent the Starbucks. Flies overhead, every phone in there hooks up to the drone thinking it's in Starbucks and then they steal all the data off the phone. Well, I heard that and I was like, that's exactly what I'm gonna do. I don't need to go to the CIA, I'll just use what that criminal did and I'll get that information. Well, in the beginning of the book, the Pike's got, um, he's gotta figure out, I had two problems. He had to figure out that something terrible had happened, so I'm gonna give him spoilers away. He has to figure out what terrible thing it causes and he finds these two guys who've ridden bicycles and in, in uh, uh, Charleston, we have a thing called Holy Spokes, which is, you probably have them somewhere in Minneapolis too. It's just Uber for bicycles. You see them in New York City and everywhere. Every college town has them. We have the College of Charleston there. And it's called Holy Spokes because we're the holy city. They just change the name each place. But that bike's got a GPS on it because they don't want you to steal the bike. And to use it, you have to have an app. And that app has to have a credit card tied to it. And the app ties to the bike, and then they can tell you at any given time where the bike is, who had it, and who was riding it. Luckily, my cousin's wife lives in Charleston, works for the company. <laughs> so I got to do a deep dive on how that thing works. And that's how he figures out who these guys are, gets the credit card from them and then tracks him to a place called Restoration Hardware Hotel, which is a real place in downtown Charleston. And I was trying to figure out how, okay, Pike wants to hear what's going on in the room, but right at this point in the book, he doesn't have any support from the task force. So he doesn't have any gee whiz stuff. He's got whatever he's got available to him is what he's got available to him. And um, I was trying to figure out, okay, how can I figure out what's in that room? I'd already used, I don't want to do the same thing in each book, and so it gets harder and harder to figure stuff out. Um, one book I use, the Samsung TVs, there's three different Samsung TVs that have microphones, you can talk to the TV, it'll change the channel. Well, it turns out it's listening to everything you say, and it's sending that stuff back to Samsung. Um, because it needs, the, in order to do voice commands, any artificial intelligence, what you need is computing power, which we can produce in droves, but you need data. You've got to have the data to make sure that the algorithm works. So in the early days of your Xfinity Xbox, when you said, show me Magnum PI, it would do something stupid. Well, the only way they can fix that is to hear people say, show me Magnum PI a thousand times. So every time you talk into that thing, it sends it back to a data. They record it all. And they use that algorithm to fix the thing to work. So I'd use that already for the TV. So I didn't want to do that again. And so I went to the restoration hardware and said, can I see what your rooms look like? And they had an Alexa in one of the rooms. And I thought, okay, let me do some research in Alexa because I guarantee there's some way to crack that thing. And I came across a story where um, a guy's wife had been murdered. The, the husband said it was the usual 
stranger in a ski mask came in, killed my wife, and ran away. Called 911. Well, the cops didn't believe him. They thought the husband had killed the wife. They subpoenaed Amazon and said, we think that Alexa heard the murder. We want the information. Turned out Alexa heard every bit of it, and he had, in fact, murdered his wife. Um, I saw that, and I was like, okay, that's what I'm going to crack. And it turns out there's a bazillion ways to crack Alexa. I'll never have one of those in my house, ever. Uh, one of the more unique ones, I was doing a hotel, so this wouldn't work in a hotel, but it was pretty unique, is the Alexa uh, microphone is like a, a dog's ear. It hears higher and lower frequencies than a human ear. And so because of that, you have a phrase to turn on the Alexa. Hey, Alexa, do this. Hey, Alexa, turn my lights on. Well, they can say it in a voice that's higher than you can hear, and then I now control your Alexa. So somebody outside your house, if he knows what Alexa is in the window or whatever, goes to the window and says, hey, Alexa, unlock my front door. Click. And then the guy's in the house, and you don't even know it because you don't hear it. It's higher frequency than human ear can hear. Well, that was pretty cool, but it wouldn't help for the hotel room. So I kept looking, and there was another guy came up with a hack. It was a small, you put malware on the bottom of the Alexa. You physically access the Alexa, and it's a small soldering. It doesn't take electrical engineering. It took a soldering iron and two little welds, and you had this malware loaded in the bottom of it, put it back together, and you now own that Alexa. That was pretty good, and I could figure that one out. Except now he's going to break into a hotel room and physically access the Alexa. And I was like, that's not very sexy. If he's going to do that and just pummel him or something, put a tape recorder in there. So I started doing more research. And it turns out, you know, if you have an Alexa in your kitchen, your bedroom, and your den, they all talk to each other. If it's on the same Wi-Fi network, you say somebody Alexa downstairs, the upstairs Alexa knows you've said it. Uh, and that's because Amazon's trying to sell you stuff. But the, uh, well, as soon as I saw that, okay, well, instead of bedroom, den, and uh, uh, kitchen, how about hotel room one, two, and three? Now I don't need to get in his room, I just need to rent my room. I modify my Alexa, I can now control his Alexa. Uh, and I can record everything that comes out of that room. In fact, anywhere in the hotel, if it's on the same Wi-Fi network. So those are the kind of things I spend an inordinate amount of time trying to figure out, but once I do, I mean, we were actually in Australia, I just did my last research trip, and there was Alexa in our hotel room, and we were talking about what we were gonna do that day, and it woke up to give us the weather. I was like, <laughs> I didn't even say anything. And I was like, what did you hear last night? Unplug that thing. <laughs> Which I did. I mean, I'd already done the research for this book. I was like, that's evil. Get that Alexa out of here. Uh, some of the other stuff I'll use literary license on. Not because it's not physically possible, just because we haven't done it. Um, but it's certainly physically possible. One of the things, I have a nail clipper. I call it a nail clipper, which is basically a quadcopter drone with a charge on it, explosive charge. and facial recognition software. And it's a suicide drone. Throw it in the air, flies around. When it recognizes a face, and blows the person up because it recognizes the face. We don't have anything like that small. We do have what's known as a switchblade, which is a big one. Um, see, I did that. The real one's a switchblade, and it's huge. Mine's a nail clipper. It's small. <laughs> I was proud of myself for that one. Um, the switchblade that the military doesn't call a suicide uh, drone, because that, that doesn't sound good. They call it a loitering munition, because <laughs> it loiters around. But the switchblade's a real thing, and it's out there. Uh, we're using it in Afghanistan right now. You launch it out of a tube, flies up there, sees a vehicle, <laughs> blows a vehicle up. Uh, last thing's not really a technology thing I had to do, but the Russians have a, uh, I had to have a way for the Russians to move around the world, and it's hard for Russians to move around the world, uh, unless they're moving in friendly territory, which obviously these people were not. Um, because if they're coming to America, there's got to have all kinds of, you know, documentation of why you're coming, who's, what are you doing here, and all that kind of stuff. And if you're a Russian, you immediately spike on the FBI's 
data. They're like, this Russian's coming in, what's he coming in for? Uh, it's very hard for the Russians to get around the world. Uh, and every time they do get around the world and they do something wrong, they immediately get caught. Like Skirple, they killed a guy in London. It took them about two minutes to figure out it was a bunch of Russians. And they were there under official cover. Now, these Wagner guys, they don't have official cover. They're supposedly a private military company. And it's like, how am I going to get these guys to go around the world? Because it's hard for them to go. It's Americans. We, we can travel anywhere in the world, really. It's pretty simple for us. You get a blue passport, and if you're only going for 30 days, you don't even need a visa. You just go. It's not like that for Russians. Although I did have to get a visa for Brazil. I was surprised. But everywhere else I've been, you just blue passport, you're good to go. Not for the Russians. If they're going anywhere, they're going to need a visa. And if they're going to need a visa, they're going to have to explain why they're there. And it's just a huge mess of uh, evidence left behind. So I started doing research on how in the world these guys can get around. And I found a thing called the investment passport, which is a real thing. Uh, and St. Kitts is the biggest one of the investment passports. Basically, if you dump enough money into St. Kitts, they'll give you a passport. You become a citizen. Uh, if you invest, you know, $2 million or whatever. Well, it turns out uh, CUDS force members from Iran who are sanctioned, they have St. Kitts passports. The uh, drug cartels in Mexico, St. Kitts passports. Because it allows them to go wherever they need to go. Because, I mean, St. Kitts is kind of like America. I mean, there's like, must be a reggae band coming in. Nobody's afraid of St. Kitts. They don't think you get a visa to go anywhere. <laughs> What's St. Kitts going to do? Uh, and so they use them all the time. And so that's what my Russians use. Said, okay, that's what they'll do. We actually have the same thing in America. You don't get a, a passport, but you can get a visa. It's an investment visa. If you can't get a visa any other way and you dump enough money in here, we'll give you a visa to come on in. Um, one of the hardest things about writing a book is uh, the a series is you, the, when you write your first book, the universe is wide open. You can do whatever you want to do. It's completely wide open. But uh, as soon as you write something down, you've necked the universe down. So if I say somebody has blue eyes, they got blue eyes forever. If I say they're five foot four or six foot two, they're five foot four or six foot two forever. Every time I write something, it starts necking it down. And when I wrote my first book, I didn't think I'd have one book published, much less 14. I, uh, I had to have a mission set for the, I, the task force. I get to ask this all the time. There's no such thing as a task force. We don't have that at all. I specifically made an organization that nobody in my professional side would accuse me of just changing the names and writing about real units. So I made a unit that anybody who'd ever worked in that world would say, well, that's obviously fake. We don't have that. Even so, I knew how the organization would function. It would have a charter, have a mission set. It would have left and right limits of what it did. It wouldn't just be wide open, do whatever you want to do. It's going to be, you have a mission, and here's what your mission is. Uh, and so when I came up with the mission set, I said, I'll do the foreign terrorist organization. The State Department has a list of the foreign terrorist organization designations, what it is. FTO list is what it's called. And all the usual suspects are on the FTO list, you know, Al-Qaeda, ISIS. But there's a whole bunch more that you've never heard of. They put them all on there. Qatab Hezbollah that rocketed us in Iraq, and we killed the guy with Soleimani. They've been on the list since 2009. I mean, they're designated terrorists. Um, and so that's the list I was going to use, which worked out well for one rough man. Um, but now they're going against Russians. You know, 14 books later, I'm like, I wish I really hadn't done that. Because now I'm going to have him go after these guys when that's clearly way outside their mission set. They're not supposed to be fighting state systems. And they certainly aren't supposed to be fighting private military companies. So I had a hard time trying to figure out how, to, how am I going to get that thing wickered in there. And I had to really work through what am I going to do to make this you know, realistic so someone doesn't say, that's not even our charter. They're not allowed to do that. Um, sometimes you can forget the universe, though. I uh, wrote uh, No Fortunate Son, which is either book seven or eight. I can't remember. 
And Kurt Hale's a commander of the task force, and he's a bachelor. And he's got a daughter who's, uh, or I'm sorry, a niece who loves him like a father and he loves her like a daughter. She gets kidnapped. That's the whole book. Boom. Pike Logan on the rescue. It's one of my better books, and I'm really proud of it. And I start getting emails. Hey, what happened to Kurt Hill's wife? What are they talking about? So I pull out one rough man. Boom! He's, he was married. <laughs> it's like one sentence in the entire book. He says, I got a date night with my wife, and I don't want to miss it. That's the only reference to a wife ever. But as soon as you put it in there, the universe is neck down. I got 100 emails. What happened to Kurt Hill's wife? What happened to Kurt Hill's wife? Well, she was delivering cookies to an orphanage. got hit by a truck. <laughs> it's not on the page, though. You won't ever see it. So now I've consciously started, I'm starting to make notes of everything I've done. Well, the biggest what if you're going to do in the universe was my last book, The Daughter of War. In the front of the book, there's a, um, a Syrian refugee who's got a phone that Pike needs to start the plot. And she's, I was just going to kill her. Chapter four, she's dead. Move on out. And Pike's gone. Let's get it on. In fact, the, the book was called Shadow Strike until I turned it in. Uh, and I liked her too much. By chapter four, she'd kind of grown on me. So I didn't kill her. And she went through the whole book, and it changed the entire flavor of the book. The book became Daughter of War. She is the Daughter of War. Uh, the title changed because of her. Well, now I got a problem. She exists. I didn't kill her. Um, so much so, I was like, what am I going to do with her now? I'm going to cut this young 13-year-old refugee. So I told my editor that uh, I'm going to start the book off this one, Hunter Killer. It was a gloomy funeral as they lowered the small casket into the ground, just to be, you know. Sorry about that, Edda. She got killed just like Kurt Hill's wife. Um, but I didn't do that. But I had to figure out, how am I going to uh, put her in the book but not have her take over the book like last time? If, you, if you're writing a novel, everything has to go forward. The, the plot has to advance. There can be no extraneous stuff. You're going to advance the plot forward, advance the plot forward, advance the plot forward. So I couldn't have a scene with Amina and Pike eating hamburgers and then, you know, stop, hamburger scene. Okay, Amina's alive, everybody knows that. Let's get back to the action. That just would be sorry book. And so I had to work really hard to figure out how am I going to get her in the book without her taking over the book. And it ended up working out really well because the theme of the book is kind of family, and she doesn't have a family anymore. Her family's been wiped out. Uh, and so she's really strongly attached to family, and it worked out well, but it took a lot of work to get it there. And at the end of the day, I think it's... It, if it's not my best book, it's certainly up there. It's one of my best books. And I, I was reading it, uh, always reading my books again, because you're writing the next book as before you go on tour. So you read the next, you read this book just to remind yourself, what am I talking about up here? And uh, you sit there and you go, did I write that? Damn, that's good. It's like, <laughs> I kind of impress myself as I'm reading it. So I think it's one of my best books. With that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our club book audience for questions and comments for Brad Taylor and his work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from an audience member wondering how Taylor first got into writing. Uh, believe it or not, I just always, I've been, always been a voracious reader. And uh, in the back of my head, I was going to write a book one day. It was just was something I was doing. In fact, my wife's not here. On my first date with my wife, I was still in college. I told her I was going to Special Forces and I was going to write a book. I hadn't done either one of those things. 
I was just trying to get her clothes off, but it was, <laughs> but it was true. And uh, so I, was, I left the special mission unit for Bragg, and I taught at the Citadel uh, just as a break for deployment. And when I got down there, I had a ton of time on my hands. It was a whole different world. I mean, I really enjoyed teaching, but you, it's kind of rinse and repeat. Once you had the classes, I mean, 9 in the morning, I'm like, what are we doing now? And so I told my wife, hey, I'm going to write a book. She was like, whatever. And I, I thought it'd sit on the bedside, bedside table. My mom would say it was good, but uh, it sold. And so then I became a writer. This audience member asks about how much research Taylor does for his books before sitting down to write. It depends on the book. I was doing two books a year for a while. Uh, and that is, that is literally the saying, if you wait the last minute, it only takes a minute. Because that's pretty much what I was doing. So the, it uh, depends on how much I know to begin with and how much, like this one took a lot more research because I don't know anything about South America. Um, Daughter of War, I know a heck of a lot about Syria. Uh, and the rest of it was in Europe. I knew a lot about that. Um, so not as much. On the ground research, it's usually the same amount, about two weeks on the ground each time. Usually I'll read the book that's coming out that I'm working on right now um, is on Taiwan, China, Australia. And I read six books on China on artificial intelligence and all that kind of stuff. And then we went to Taiwan and Australia. And then I'm constantly watching the news. In fact, this corona stuff's killing me. Like, Get out of here. First it was Hong Kong. I was like, would you fix that so I can keep writing? And now it's coronavirus, which I've decided I'm just going to ignore it. Now I'm going to set it right before coronavirus came in, the Taiwan elections. But it's, it's hard to say. Each book's been different. Um, sometimes I have to do a lot more research, and other times I don't. This question is if Taylor knows the ending of his books before he starts. Does he make use of outlining? I would have said by book eight, I would have said 100% of the time I know the ending. Book eight changed. Now I'd say it's 80% of the time I know the ending. Um, sometimes it just, well, see, like Daughter of War, I didn't know the ending because in my head, she wasn't even going to be in the book. So that, that altered. I work with what I call a framework. I don't outline chapter by chapter. I will know the threat vector. I'll know the scenario. Uh, and 80% of the time I'll know the ending. So I know the start point, ending point, a couple things in between. There'll be a scene in my head where I think I know what I want to do, um, but I don't know it granularly all the way through. Um, some things end up in the book that I never knew about. The Manaus Opera House, getting rolled up as a spy. I mean, that ends up in the book, but I, didn't, I certainly couldn't have outlined that. I didn't know it was coming. This audience member wonders about the shifting perspective in Brad Taylor's book, The Forgotten Soldier. I, honestly, the, I get asked all the time, how'd you know to break the rule? You're not supposed to do first person, third person. So when Pike's on the page, it's first person. Everybody else, it's third person. Sometimes Pike's in the room, but it's Jennifer talking in third person. How did you know to break that rule? And my answer is, I didn't know it was a rule. <laughs> if you'd have told me it was a rule, I wouldn't have done it. But I, my instructors were authors, and um, uh, Nelson DeMille write, wrote Plum Island and a bunch of other John Corey books, and that's what he does. He doesn't do it nearly as much as I do, but he did it, and I liked it. And I said, that's what I'm going to do. Uh, and then, you know, I was told you're not supposed to do that, and I'm like, tell Nelson DeMille. <laughs> He's the one doing it. That's the only reason I did it. I thought it, I could get more out of Pike doing first person. I actually wrote, wrote One Rough Man completely in third person. And they went back and changed every time Pike's on the page to first person, which was obviously a lot of work, but it made it a better book. Our next question is if the character of Pike Logan is named after anyone. Uh, no, the, well, sort of. Uh, Logan is the name of my firstborn son. I had two daughters. So now he lives on his Pike. I never had a son. 
So the Logan part was his, supposed to be his first name. And Pike was just a call sign. Call signs are tough because you don't want to use a call sign that people are using. Uh, they think you're writing about them. So I'm constantly trying to come up with a call sign that somebody else has not used. And I ran, actually, I was on a security contract and ran out of call signs. And this guy named Axe is his call sign. And he looks like a Call of Duty guy. He's six foot four, bald head, huge beard, huge guy. Just exactly what you see on Call of Duty. And we were sitting in a vehicle, and I said, uh, hey, do you mind if I use your call sign? It's not you, but I'm just out of call signs. And he said, well, is he going to be a baby? He didn't say that. He used the P word, but that's what he said. I said, no, no, I'll write it, and you can read it. And so I made that character him. <laughs> and so his exact same description and everything. That's the only character in any of the books with a call sign like that that's actually that. The rest of the call signs, it's just trying to come up with a call. Knuckles, I don't know any knuckles. So I didn't want to use a call sign where somebody, because it happened in the past, I had Buckshot in one of the earlier books, and it turns out, oh, you're writing for this guy from Sea Squadron. I didn't even know the guy was. I was like, no, I'm sorry, I'm not. <laughs> but it's just imagination. Another audience member inquires if any of Taylor's work has been optioned for TV or film. I've been approached. I have not so far done it. Um, and it's probably more cowardice on my part than anybody else, because it's, it's very hard to get a movie made, an actual, whether, when I say movie, I mean Netflix or whatever. Very, very hard. Maybe 0.01% uh, actually ever makes it to the screen. And they option a ton of books. Now, once they have the rights to your characters, they can do whatever they want to with them. They, they have no, it's theirs until the option's up and it comes back to you. And so my first thing is, are they really going to make a movie? And two, do they really care about what I've written? And they're not going to change it. I mean, they can do whatever they want to. They can make Pike female and Jennifer male. They can do whatever they want. It's their books now. Uh, and the biggest example is Jack Reacher. Everybody screams and yells about that. Right. But that's, and I, you don't get any option to talk to them about it. Unless you're, you know, Tom Clancy had script approval. Um, uh, so if you're a huge big wig, you get something like that. But, I mean, I understand where they're coming from. You know, you, this guy's going to have a showrunner who, they call him a showrunner. So there's this guy that will option your book. They call him the showrunner. Now it's his job to go find a director, to go find actors, to go find all this other stuff, script writers and that kind of stuff. And so the showrunner is going to have a problem because that director is going to have his vision. He's going to have an actor with his vision. Does he really want the author standing there with his vision? So they're like, no, you don't get a say in it. Just move on out. And so I've had quite a few offers, and uh, at each time I just chickened out because I did they always have, you know, I worked on these movies and that movies, and they probably did, but I mean, were they a caterer? I mean, I don't know what they did. <laughs> so, you know, this guy from The Hurt Locker and this guy from Thunder Road and all these guys that have worked on big movies. Um, but I was just never convinced that they were going to carry through. And a lot of times it just never goes, before I even say no, they just never come back. I had dinner with a guy, um, what did he do? I can't remember now. But he was a, a bigwig, and... Um, Hey, love your books, want to have dinner, blah, blah, blah. He was in Charleston filming Mr. Mercedes, which is on Showtime or something. Um, and he said, I'm in Charleston doing Mr. Mercedes, I love your books. Can I, we have dinner, let's talk about this. So I did, and I was coming to Lane, woo, woo, look what's happened. I had crickets, never heard another word about it. <laughs> I guess I didn't impress him at dinner. <laughs> this question is if Pike Logan ever ages. Not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, was wondering, because I, like I said, I didn't know I was going to have one book. I, so the very first book, he mentions his age and everything like that. And then book two and book three, he feels, you know, he's getting older and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, he's got to last forever. <laughs> so I, uh, I talked to Robert Crace 
about, uh, he writes, I don't know if you read Robert Crace, but he's got the uh, uh, Elvis Cole series. Well, Elvis Cole, when he first started writing, that was in the 80s, he was a Vietnam veteran. And now he would be in a wheelchair running around trying to catch criminals. And I said, well, what did you do with that? And he said, well, I decided to make him Superman. Never ages. <laughs> and I don't mention his age anymore. I don't mention Vietnam anymore. I don't mention any of that. I just stick him there. And I was like, that's damn good advice. That's what I'm doing. So other things will happen. People will change command and move around. The task force will do this. Presidential administrations, that's the hardest one because I only get four years on that. And then I got to do something because somebody's going to get elected. And um, so that kind of stuff will happen. But I'm not going to age Pike, at least not. Not right now. Because Gabriel Alon from Daniel Silva's books, yeah, that's a problem he's had. You know, he's gotten so long in the tooth, he's got to put him in charge of everything. Yeah. It's like, nope, should have made him Superman. Our next audience member asks if Brad Taylor has any inside sources to help him write his books. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, don't, uh, I don't consider them inside sources. I mean, I still do three security contracts a year. I've got friends everywhere. I've worked at the CIA. I've worked with the FBI. I mean... It's no trouble at all for me to, it's harder for me, I actually don't want to talk to them because I have a security clearance. And if they talk to me and give me classified information, I cannot use that in the book. Uh, and so I'd prefer just to do open source. And so if, it, if I happen to coincidentally say something that you're doing, I had no idea that was going on. If you write in, every um, department has their own pre-publication review process. So State Department does theirs, Department of Defense does theirs, CIA does theirs, Department of Justice does theirs. They all have a different one. Um, for the Department of Defense, if I were to write anything nonfiction-wise about the policies of the United States government, it has to be cleared. So if I was going to write about soft in Syria, if I was going to write about operations, if I wrote about, you know, the Taliban peace deal we're doing right now, that's got to be cleared. Because if I've served in Afghanistan, I've done all that stuff, and I have inside knowledge of what's going on there, and they want to make sure that I'm not doing anything wrong. If you write fiction, it doesn't have to be cleared. Uh, people are submitting their books, and I keep telling them, you're setting up a precedent where they're going to ask me, why am I not submitting my books? But you don't have to. I mean, when would you draw the line on that? So if I wrote, uh, for instance, there's nobody, there's nothing in my books that task force is completely fake. Well, say I wrote a book about uh, a science fiction book. Now are you going to clear that? Even though I use the same terminology and everything else in science fiction? What if I wrote a book about something I don't know anything about? My next book is about a New York City cop. Does that have to be cleared by DOD? I'm not a New York City cop. Why would that have to be cleared? So it gets to the point where it gets to a line, it's just like, and if you submit the book, they're going to review it. And they're going to redact everything but the word the. Because they, <laughs> they don't care about you making any money, they just care about, you know, whatever helps them out. So I don't, uh, I'm not submitting my book. They have been reviewed. The, uh, I had a hard year one year. No Easy Day came out, which is a nonfiction book about killing Bin Laden. He didn't get it re reviewed. It's a bunch of classified in that damn book. Uh, so SOCOM lost their mind. If you wrote a gardening book, you were getting reviewed. <laughs> and all my books got reviewed. I was in a SCIF, Secure Compartment Information Facility, getting interrogated. It was inane questions. You have target Abu Bagha Donuts. Did you chase Abu Bagha Donuts in Iraq? No, I went to the website Shia Baby Names, and I picked a name. I mean, that's how I found the names. Um, so I came up clean bill of health. There's no classified in it. But... Uh, I'm not, I know, I know what my non-disclosure statement is, and I'm meeting it. Other guys are sending their books in. I'm like, would you quit it? The last question of the night comes from an audience member wondering about the toll it took on Taylor to write two books a year. It was crushing, and I did it to myself. I was, uh, when I first got out of the military, what actually happened, I came out of promotion list of Bird Colonel. I was supposed to go to Pakistan two years unaccompanied to their counterterrorism force. 
my daughter was entering high school, uh, and the book sold. And so I had to make a decision. And I turned down the promotion, retired from the military, said I'm going to give writing a try. And you're not making any money just because your book sold. <laughs> I mean, it takes an entire year before even, even if it, you do get any royalties. Usually it's two years before you see your first royalty. So I had to make some money. So I did what everybody else does. I became my own private Wagner <laughs> military company and just started signing up for, you know, I, I have a unique skill set. Uh, I never had to put a resume out. It's all word of mouth. Somebody will contact me and say, would you like to do this? And so I was doing uh, security contracting a whole lot. And my book was due in December. I had a contract from July until January. I turned my book in in July. Publisher was doing cheetah flips. Holy moly, six months early. Never heard of that before. It's because I had that contract. Well, then I sit there and beat him in the head saying, why don't you put my book out? Hurry up, hurry up. Because if you write current events, the hardest thing about current events is they're current. Anything could destroy that book. And um, they were like, well, you know, I don't think anybody told you this. You're not our only author. Your book comes in in December. And so um, I did that for three books in a row. And they said, okay, if you want to be like that, let's do a book every six months. There's a huge difference between turning a book in six months early and having to do one in six months. Because <laughs> it turns out you're not doing, you're not writing one book. You're doing three books. I was literally editing a book while I was promoting a book like I'm doing right now uh, while writing the next book. And I was doing the short stories. Uh, so it was two novellas a year, two book research trips a year, two book tours a year. Uh, and it, it, was, it got to the point, Days of Rage was the final one that... Uh, I told my wife we're doomed. <laughs> I'm not finishing this book. There's no way I was so burned out. Luckily, just as a pure coincidence, my uh, uh, publisher called me and said, hey, we want to go back to one book a year because uh, they have this whole cycle thing. And basically, I was cannibalizing books. So you know, six months later, the next book comes out. This one's still in hardback, and their paperback's not out yet. That won't come out for another year. Uh, they wanted to build a fan base, which worked, I guess. But I was like, Phew. that's it for me. I'm not doing that anymore. I don't know how I did it. I honestly do not know because I can't even do one book a year now. I got a book due at the end of the month. <laughs>